Hello and welcome to Martian Drive-In Podcast 148. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing recent movies. The first one is 2019's Glass, M. Night Shyamalan's third movie in his East Rail 177 trilogy starring Samuel L. Jackson, James McAvoy and Bruce Willis. And then we move on to a very unusual little beast which is the PG-rated version of Deadpool 2 known as Once Upon a Deadpool, starring Ryan Reynolds, of course. So let's sit back, let me get the contact details out of the way, and I'll start the show. Martian Driving Podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy, and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a roundtable. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also email feedback to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema for as little as a dollar a week. Uh, Just be aware when you're listening to the podcast, there may be some naughty words in it. So if there are kids around, you might want to listen to it later on. Hey, how's everybody doing? It's still summertime here, though. It's weirdly cool right at the moment. So I don't have to have the air conditioner on, which means I don't get that humming in the background of the podcast audio, which is a bit of a bonus there. Ah, yeah. So as usual, of course, the 15 minute Richard rule applies to this podcast, meaning that at the 15-minute mark of the podcast, I have to start talking about the two movies. So what's been happening lately? Not a lot. We're keeping it very quiet. We're low-keying it until April when we go to Japan, so there's not any kind of splurging on going out for wonderful trips or concerts or anything like that. Nothing really big and marvellous happening, but come April, the Japan trip's there, and that's going to be a truly wonderful experience. And I'm going to talk about it in every podcast up until it happens. Because there's absolutely nothing better in a podcast than annoying your audience. But I better move on from there. I'm in a dark place. Um, Yeah, sun's just come out, which is kind of nice. I'm looking at the window of the man cave, which needs a wash. And the sun has come out, which is good. Um, What did I do? I did do a country drive. I, I got this thing where about once a month, I take off by myself and do a country drive. Uh, play music loudly. It's even better now that I've got Amazon streaming music so I can pick the tunes a lot easier than playing around with the old iPod. Nice though, that is. And I went out to a place called St. Hearted up in the middle of Victoria. I went past some really nice um, wind farms, which is kind of cool. I did a time lapse. If you have a look at the start of my latest YouTube video, by the way, I did a YouTube video. I did my 10 favourite road movies. And the bit at the start I recorded halfway up Victoria, early in the morning. I left so early that the sun hadn't quite breached the trees when I recorded that bit at the start of the video. And it kind of gave a nice... um, A lot of photographers, just to stay on the same thought, a lot of photographers talk about mornings and evenings being the best time to do photography outside and they're right um i've got empirical evidence of that now i loved doing a time lapse that i did uh as the sun was coming up because all the shadows change kind of rapidly when you do a time lapse video early in the day or early or late in the evening and i kind of liked being out there the roads weren't busy the day hadn't got hot yet and the light has a, a kind of golden glow to it that I really did like and it kind of worked well for what I was trying to put across and so again I'm learning stuff here I'm learning all the time with this um, YouTube thing how to do things and I'm trying things see what works see what doesn't work and little bits of kind of miraculous cool stuff pop up and the start of the latest video is one of those if you can manage it I recommend taking a kind of break even if it's only for a few hours and go off somewhere you haven't been before or somewhere you haven't been very often before by yourself play some music that uh, soothes you and and kind of energizes you at the same time Uh, just kind of get out there and get some sunshine into your eyes if you're an office worker like I used to be 
it can be really kind of depressing, particularly for the Northern Hemisphere guys, that you're going to work when it's dark and you're coming home when it's dark. If you get a chance to get out, even if it's fucking cold, which of course it is up there, then get out and kind of get out in the sunshine and do something you haven't done. I recommend that highly. Of course, I've got a lot more ability to do that now that I'm not working, but I do suggest that you need now and then to just kind of clear the dust out. And if I can take some cool video while I'm doing it, it's a bonus for me. And Sal is really supportive of that too, which I like. She doesn't mind me taking the car away for a day, fanging it out in the bush and then coming back with stories. Well, the other thing too, I've got some more news. Uh, ABC Radio's back. I'm doing it again with the evenings. Uh, recording it actually on Wednesday, which is kind of cool. Doing it with Richard Marguson, who used to do the morning shift on ABC local radio, Darwin, and is now doing the afternoon shift. Now, I'm going to have to up my game with Richard because Richard researches everything he does a lot more than um, some of the other presenters have because he's meticulous at this kind of thing. So we're changing the format a bit. I'm going to do a movie. Then we're going to talk about a similar movie, and then we're going to talk about a bit of movie music as well. So it's nice that they're freshening up the format. I like that idea, and I'm running with it. And Richard and I are going to record one on Wednesday, which is going to be broadcast on Wednesday night. Uh, we're doing Aquaman. I was going to do Aquaman for this podcast, but um, because of technical difficulties, the person I was going to do it with was unable to. I've given that person a rain check, and any time he wants to um, get on board with Paleo Cinema or Martian Driving, I am really happy to have him as a contributor here. But sometimes technology fails us. It's just a fact of life. So anyway, what have I been watching? Let me just bring up the letterbox. Uh, I did say Chinese film, which is kind of interesting because it has Michael Douglas in it, of all things. It's a very weird and slightly surrealistic film called Animal World, which is about uh, an enormous ship that plies the seas and people go on the ship uh, to to take part in a game of rock, paper, scissors involving cards. You get um, two rocks, two papers, two scissors, and you've got to go through a routine where you um, play against a whole bunch of other people on board the ship. And if you fail, you end up being part of a medical experiment. It's a very fucked up and weird movie, but I kind of liked it. It was a bit different. It had a slight Yu-Gi-Oh flavor in some parts, which was kind of interesting for me. But uh, the visuals are striking, it's done well, and it's very, very different from anything you're going to see from an Anglophone culture. It's, um, it plays to kind of the 1%. It's very entertaining. It's an action-adventure film, it says here on uh, Wikipedia, and it's on Netflix. I did see an ad for it when I was in Sydney. I was in Chinatown, uh, one of my trips in Sydney, about a year ago. And they had an enormous ad for it on a big screen in a shopping centre in Chinatown, uh, in the World Centre, it's called. And I thought, yeah, I want to see that movie. And it came up on Netflix. I went, okay, I'm in it. I'm there. It was actually based on a, um, on a manga called Kaiju, sorry, Kaiji, by uh, Nobuyuki Fukumoto. So it's a Chinese film based on a Japanese manga. And it's, it definitely feels like it, it is. Um, check it out if you haven't seen it. It's uh, it's probably on Netflix internationally. I definitely know it's on Netflix in Australia. And I want to see more content like this. I want to kind of expand my knowledge of trash cinema from around the world. And because China and Japan are particularly easy to get to from here, I want to maybe concentrate on East Asian cinema. And one of the things I wanted to do this year was see more films I haven't seen before. Now, if I go back to my letterbox, I'll let you know what percentage I'm running at the moment because I'm actually not doing too badly. Let me just count up. I've done 16 films, so how many haven't I seen before? Um, Let's see. Three out of the 16 are films that I've seen before. So I'm not doing too badly. I wanted to see a film a day, and it's now the 20th of January. So I'm going to have to pick up my pace and do a bit of a binge watch so i watched that i watched a comedy one of those comedies that has jason bateman in it called game night which was kind of amusing and kind of fun without being anything really special so there's not too much to say about that it's very middle of the road kind of comedy it pretends to be transgressive but it really isn't in the manner that american comedies tend to be uh then went and revisited a hitchcock movie which is kind of cool stars uh john mccray and its foreign correspondent it's also got george sanders in it 
Um, yeah, it's, it's a good, honest kind of World War Two Hitchcock movie with some nice little tropes in it. The um, it's picaresque in the sense that it, you know the guys are moving from one place to another and going up against Nazis and. And it really does show the way that Hitchcock was trying to stay at the state of the art. He was trying to do things that might not have been possible. There's a lot of moving shots. There's an enormous set for one piece that cost them a lot of money to make. And I love the fact that Hitchcock was pushing the envelope as far as what you could show. These days you can show pretty much anything because with gimbals and drones and cranes and all sorts of other things, there's not too much you can't do as far as filming in a certain manner. But Hitchcock did it first, and Hitchcock did it without a lot of the technological appurtenances we have now. And Foreign Correspondent was a nice revisit. And George Sanders is always interesting for me. He's interesting when he plays a villain, but I like watching him play a hero as well, because there's always an ambiguity about his heroes. Maybe because he was, you know, his, what was his um, autobiography called? Memoirs of a Cad. And there's always that caddishness about anything that George Sanders does in a film, which I kind of liked. Then I had a documentary, which is kind of, you know, and one that I wanted to see. I heard about it a while back and it kind of fell out of my memory. But then again, it turned up on, uh, not, might have been Netflix or else that or Amazon Prime. And it's called Big in Japan. It's an Australian documentary by a bunch of three guys from Melbourne who went to Japan in order for one of them to become famous in Japan. Uh, he's a guy called Dave who's got a slightly goofy look. The three of them go over there to teach English because you can get, if you've got a university degree in Australia, you can go over to Japan for a certain amount of time to teach English without further qualifications. And they try to get him to be famous by being a wacky character. And they um, interview a couple of other people who were much more successful than Dave turns out to be at being wacky kind of non-Japanese characters in Japanese media. Uh, Lady Beard's one of them, and there's another one called uh, The Big Beast, who's a black Japan, uh, black American wrestler. And it kind of shows us a lot of that weird pop culture that Japan does so well. And it, it kind of charts the arc of these three guys trying to make Dave famous. They, well, it's not too much of a spoiler to say they don't entirely succeed, but they do give us an entertaining film about a kind of popular culture that's very different from the stuff that uh, America, Australia and England present. Of course, I saw the two movies that we're doing for the podcast, uh, Once Upon a Deadpool and Glass, which was kind of, um, well, I'm going to talk about them in a minute, so I don't really have to tell you. And uh, also this weekend... This new season of Star Trek Discovery started, and I kind of I'm back on board with that. Like myself, a bit of Star Trek Disco. Uh, the Good Place has got a new episode this week, which was good, and The Punisher, the second season of The Punisher, was dropped onto Netflix on Friday night, and I'm two episodes in, and I like it. Uh, I really like John Bernthal playing Frank Castle, The Punisher, and the first episode's got something really interesting in it which I really appreciated, and I saw how wonderfully it was done. In the era of Me Too and all those other issues and that kind of prurience that people previously had about certain things, the first episode of The Punisher has the most wonderfully nuanced and delicate and well-done one-night stand that I've seen in a long time. Um, Frank meets up with a bartender at a bar and, and they kind of hit it off. And that kind of slow, tentative approach toward a one-night stand where you don't want to get hurt and you don't want to hurt the other person, you want to be respectful, and you're kind of tentative about it and caring, but you want to look after your own feelings. There's a lot of that kind of stuff going on in this episode. And it's done really well and it's done with a sense of realism that I really appreciated. And it shows that you can convey certain things in an era of increased sensitivity about um, sexuality and about the entitlement that women obviously are entitled to as far as this stuff's concerned. And this episode does it really, really well, and I appreciated that a lot. It just hits the spot. So anyway, it's now 15 minutes into the podcast, which means I've got to start talking about the movies. 
And the first one I'm going to talk about is Once Upon a Deadpool, and here is the trailer. Right before Christmas, a good guy in red is coming to theatres with his new sidekick, Fred. Why am I here? You're in a PG-13 version of Deadpool. Filtered through the prism of childlike innocence. I'm a grown And nobody man. does childlike innocence like you, Fred. Nobody. I need you almost as much as you need me. I don't need you at all. You need me to untie you once we're done. I loved your working up. I'm sorry? Don't get too attached. Once upon a Deadpool. Kind of prefer Marvel movies. We are Marvel. Yeah, but you're, you know, Marvel licensed by Fox. It's like if the Beatles were produced by Nickelback. It's music, but it sucks. <gasps> you were nicer as a kid. Rated PG-13. Limited engagement in theaters December 12th. In case you didn't get it from that, the Fred involved is Fred Savage. And the conceit is that Deadpool has kidnapped him and put him in the bed in a set exactly like the one Fred Savage was in when he was a little kid in The Princess Bride. So they decided to make a PG iteration of Deadpool 2, and they put it out for the holiday season. came out on DVD here in Australia and Blu-ray. I don't think there were any theatrical releases, but I could be wrong. And... Um, it was very cheap too. It was only like 15 bucks, and then I got a 20% discount on that, so it wasn't terribly expensive as these things go. And so Sal and I sat down and watched it last night. And it's interesting. Um, I, I think that there's just so much that's meta in this version of the uh, movie that kind of you can go down a rabbit hole and may never emerge from it. The first thing I'd say is that partly the movie is a comment on making PG-rated versions of properties that rightfully should be at a much more adult rating. I think that they're kind of taking the piss out of that a lot with this one and saying that the movie gets diminished if you do that, even though they can't really say that because, of course, they want to make money out of it and there's all of that kind of stuff. But it is a diminished version of Deadpool in some ways. Yes, the Fred Savage... Ryan Reynolds' dialogue there is sharp, it's on point, it's meta, it's a lot of fun and it kind of works in a number of ways. And then when you get back to the actual narrative of the movie, the Deadpool 2 stuff, you've, the thing it brings you to is this doesn't have any of the gross-out humour. There's the bit where the X-Force get mangled in various ways during a parachute drop. That gets crazily diminished in this version in such a way that you kind of don't quite get what's going on in some of the bits. And the, they kind of even make fun of the bleeping with the Fred Savage part, which is kind of interesting as well, because a lot of the adult language gets bleeped out or altered dialogue in the manner that TV used to do back in the day. And it really does kind of take away from the balls-to-the-wall, transgressive, rude and obnoxious Deadpool that a lot of us know and love. So to take one step back from that, what we have is Deadpool itself, Deadpool and Deadpool 2 themselves were meta-narratives about superheroes. The fourth war was hardly there at all. Um, they take the piss out of everything. There's the bit where Cable gets called Thanos by Deadpool and you know that kind of stuff is all through the movie. It's woven into the fabric. It's one of the strengthening threads in the fabric is that meta-narrative about superhero movies and the fact that Deadpool, unlike a lot of other characters in a lot of other franchises, knows he's in a movie and knows he's a cartoon comic book character, even though there are scenes where things get very serious, particularly with the death of his partner, Vanessa. And that even gets addressed in the meta-narrative with Fred Savage, where they talk about fridging Vanessa in an open way and kind of go, well, yeah, you fridge visit, and Fred Savage says, well, you fridge Vanessa. If you don't know what fridging is, you should really look it up on Wikipedia. I'm not going to go down that, but uh, it's a trope. Well, well, I'll give you the short version. It's a trope in comics and in narratives of other kinds where a female partner of a hero is killed just so that the hero can experience pain and the need for revenge. And it appears in a lot of places. Uh, the whole thing, with the, just talking about the Punisher, Part of the Punisher's arc there is the fact that his wife and his child get fridged 
But the interesting thing that the Netflix series did with that is that they also gave him an acquired brain injury as a part of that. And so it's not necessarily that his wife got killed that turns him into a vigilante. It's the fact that his wife got killed. And he also has an acquired brain injury, which puts him in a constant state of hyper-alertness. His fright and flight reflex is always there. And so they kind of retconned the original fridging origin story of The Punisher and turned it into something different, which is about acquired brain injury and Frank Castle trying to live with that brain injury. So I think that's a much more interesting and much more complicated backstory that they put into The Punisher. But in Deadpool, what's part of Deadpool, they address the fridging of Vanessa in there, which I think they had to do. Uh, basically, it's lazy. And, and they also mentioned the lazy writing in a couple of bits of it as well. One of the things that uh, Fred Savage says is lazy writing. So they've made Deadpool 2. Then they do a meta-narrative with reduced violence and um, graphic content and adult language in which they tell us all the things that are wrong with Deadpool 2. So from the meta point of view, it works. And the thing that kind of, for me, made it even more interesting in some ways is that by letting uh, the PG-13, I think it is, version of Deadpool out, they show how diminished the movie is by taking out half of the things we like about it. And watching Once Upon a Deadpool from the narrative point of view, leaving aside the frame story, from the narrative point of view, it's not the same movie. It's not as good a movie as Deadpool 2 was. And I think that was part of the point that the makers were trying to make. And they were kind of thumbing their noses or you know, farting in the general direction of the censorship as it is in cinema in 2019 or 2018 when the movie came out anyway but what they're trying to say is with Netflix and all the other ways that um, people of a certain age have of circumnav you know circumventing not circumnavigating circumventing censorship ratings that the idea of a PG rated movie is almost pointless in a modern society I mean when I go into Netflix it just asks me whether I'm me or Sally or a child I click on me and it goes straight through to my feed for Netflix. So I'm sure that a kid wouldn't have too much trouble getting their, into their parents' profile and then messing around with it and watching things that maybe their parents don't, don't want to watch. And they can do it on a mobile phone or a tablet. So censorship in that old school 1970s Jack Valenti sense is totally pointless in this modern era. And without explicitly stating that i think one of the reasons why once upon a deadpool exists is to address that fact but again there are still things that still came through and things i still like i like the rapport between ryan reynolds and marina bakara and playing vanessa i think that they give a real nice feel to the relationship which works really well i like the um inclusiveness of it and the acceptance of um Negasonic Teenage Warhead's relationship with her girlfriend. I think that that's kind of cool and that she'll be seeing so much more of that stuff in future movies of all kinds. We should just see things being accepted. Um, there's also Zazie Beats turning up as Domino and she's a kick-ass hero with the super power of being incredibly lucky. Um, and then, of course, you've got Josh Brolin playing Thanos. I mean, sorry, Cable. And I love the fact that they give Cable, in the kind of world of Deadpool, they, they portray him as grumpy as much as they do um, a kind of guy who, again, is revenging the fridging of his wife and child. And part of Cable's arc in the movie is the fact that he addresses the fact that our time right now is fucking up the world for future generations. I think that that's definitely something that needs to be said and can't be said often enough. And Brianna Hildebrand, who plays Negasonic Teenage Warhead, by the way, was okay with them portraying her character as being in a lesbian relationship as long as a big deal wasn't made about it. And I really like that actors are starting to have those stipulations in there where a sane response to 
the conservative forces in the world is to normalize things that should be normal. The culture wars of the second decade of the 21st century are being fought on many fronts. But just to wrap it up for once upon a Deadpool, if you're a Deadpool fan, you're going to see it. If you're not particularly, see Deadpool 2 instead. There is some fun stuff in here with Princess Bride references and Fred Savage has a really great rapport and great comic timing with Ryan Reynolds in the movie. But it's a kind of meta-narrative on the on the film itself. And unless you're into that kind of thing and really want to be a bit completist, you're probably going to avoid it to a certain extent. But some, I think the thing that wore it out for me is the fact that in censoring Deadpool 2, they make it a lesser picture. And even though the frame story does try to balance that and give it some energy, it just doesn't work to the extent that I would like. So anyway, time for a break now. And then we hit the third of the East Rail 177 trilogy, Glass, starring Bruce Willis, James McAvoy and Samuel L. Jackson. Dishwashers get the blue. Child, baby, she said when they parted. Midnight was a time for rendezvous. Was it the evil shadow that lurked? Or hadn't she been one to that taboo? Even dishwashers. Get the blue Too close, too near Too far, too soon Too unpredictable To pretend Every story Has a beginning, baby A middle and an end Somewhere In the city at night Door closes in a room A crime of passion cuts the curtain The theater of love so we presume Even dishwashers get the blues To pretend Every story has a beginning, baby Middle and an end Somewhere In the city at night A door closes in a room 
A crime of passion cuts the curtain The theater of love so we presume Even dishwashers That was Even Dishwashers Get the Blues by Bachelors from Prague. Uh, I got that off my vinyl. I actually ripped the vinyl myself, which is why there's a little bit of a pop and crackle there. But anyway, here is the trailer for Glass. Elijah has changed over the years. He's given up. We keep him heavily sedated. But there is a reason for that. He's too smart for them. You won't be lonely anymore. You have two new friends. The three of you think you have extraordinary gifts, like something out of a comic book. I've developed an effective treatment for this disorder. The light will force a different identity to take over. Por favor, senora. I want my headphones back. Step away from the controls now, little doctor. Can't beat the beast! So you're not going to shake my hand and let me walk out of here? <laughs> Good for you. What do you want? I am here to see if tales of the extraordinary being are true. May I meet the beast? I'm Mary Reynolds. I need your abilities to get us all out of here and show the world we exist. That sounds like the bad guys teaming up. Do you believe you are an avenging angel, partner? I believe. Avenge us. I have to get out of here before he gets out. They are contained. They always underestimate the mastermind. It has begun, David. I found someone who will require your full potential. You shouldn't be hiding in the shadows. You might want to try and stop us. A lot of people are going to die. Now, who'd like a PB and J sandwich? <laughs> we are not meant to have this much power. <laughs> Finally. All of us together for the world to see what we are capable of. You need to get out of here. What have you done, Elijah? Okay, so Glass is the first movie from 2019 that I've done for the podcast, which is kind of cool. Time moves along. It's the third in the Israel 177 trilogy. Now, I've got to explain that just a little bit. The first movie in the trilogy was Unbreakable in 2000 with Bruce Willis playing David Dunn. Second one was 2016 Split. And the third one, of course, is Glass. Now, it's called the Israel 177 trilogy because the train that David Dunn was on at the start of Unbreakable, where he's the only survivor and there's not a scratch on him, is was called East Rail 177. Therefore, the three movies were named after that because that was the first point at which we suspected that somebody may be an extraordinary human being and have meta-human powers. Of course, like the other two, this one was written by M. Night Shyamalan. And um, it's, it's copped a bit of shit in various parts of the media. Uh, I'll talk about that in just a moment, but it stars Bruce Willis as David Dunn, of course. Samuel L. Jackson plays his character from the original um, Unbreakable, Elijah Price, a.k.a. Mr. Glass. James McAvoy stars as Wendell, as Kevin Wendell Crumb. I knew I'd get that wrong. Kevin Wendell Crumb, a guy who used to work at the Philadelphia Zoo who has 23 different personalities. His uh, nom de guerre is the Horde, and one of the Horde is the Beast, a superhuman cannibalistic um, creature with extraordinary abilities to climb, extraordinary strength and extraordinary speed. Elijah Price's superpower is his extraordinary intelligence and David Dunn is his strength. 
and his stamina and invulnerability, as well as an extrasensory ability to see the crimes people have committed by touching them. Dan has a new nom de guerre in this one, the Overseer. We add to the ensemble, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy is back playing Casey Cook, a teenage girl who was kidnapped by Kevin and built one rapport, some rapport with him, or at least one of his facets, during the kidnapping. Spencer Treat Clark comes back as Joseph Dunn, David Dunn's son. Now, Spencer Treat Clark was the son in the original Unbreakable way back in 2000. We also get Sarah Paulson playing Dr. Ellie Staple, a psychiatrist specialising in delusions of grandeur who treats play patients who are convinced that they are superhuman beings. We get uh, Charlene Woodard playing Elijah's mother. Interesting thing is, Charlene Woodard playing Elijah's mother is actually four years younger than Samuel L. Jackson, who's playing her son, which is almost a record in cinema. So just to get to the controversy of this movie before I talk about what it's about, one of the things people complain about is the fact that the movie doesn't have a strong ending. It doesn't have the big superhero battle to the degree um, something like a Marvel or a DC movie would have, or even one of the lesser franchises. Now, there's a reason for this, and I kind of deconstructed it. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan financed this movie almost entirely by himself. It was a $20 million budget. And compared to any other superhero movie, um, in a franchise or even in a trilogy before that, that's a tiny, tiny budget. Particularly when you've got to pay Samuel L. Jackson, James McAvoy and Bruce Willis for a start. Um, there's got to be much more than $3 million out of the budget just there. Then you've got to pay Sarah Paulson and, and other actors as well. You've got to have the special effects budget. And one of the things that Knight does really well is indicating without being showy on the special effects the fact that the beast has veins and swells up somewhat when he adopts the light the body of kevin there's a little bit of special effects work there and there are a number of other special effects bits as various battles unfurl so you couldn't get a big boss battle at the end of it on a 20 million dollar budget with these particular actors and their you know, fees, basically, to really make it work. So one of the things he did, um, and I did with this one, is he's trying not to make a standard superhero movie. It's not a superhero movie like other superhero movies. For a start, there's the slow pace and the kind of measuredness of it. Uh, I think the movie was a little dark in spots. I think there should have been a little bit more lighting in various bits, but that's just my taste. But with this one, he takes that measured approach. He approaches it from almost a real-world viewpoint, a world that doesn't know or accept that there are superheroes involved. They know there's people doing vigilante justice, the overseas doing vigilante stuff, but there's not that realisation in the public eye that there are superheroes in the world. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is that Elijah Price is putting the superhero template onto something which, as the movie develops, we find out is a much older phenomenon. The three archetypes, the beast, the brain, and the hero, have come up before in history. Let's just say that I'm not going to do any spoilers on this one particularly, but it's a recurring um, phenomenon in human history. And where one turns up, the other two develop over a period of time. And so that's a really interesting thing too. It kind of takes it to a mythic archetype in a much more direct way than a standard superhero narrative would do. And I like that. I like that idea that the three occur as a part of something. We don't know what, whether it's a superhero, uh, it's a supernatural thing, or whether it's just you know, the, the nature of the universe. Who knows? But Elijah is kind of limited, in a sense, by his perception of this being a superhero narrative, where what it is is almost a mythic hero narrative in a lot of ways. And as Elijah says towards the end of the movie, this is an origin story, which is kind of interesting because it leaves open a whole bunch of movies after this which could occur. 
Uh, they're going to be very different from these three films for a number of reasons, which will become obvious to you once you see the movie. But it's kind of it's kind of cool that he can end the series here if he chooses to, or should he choose to take it into the future, the direction is going to be different. I think the world has to open up a lot beyond Philadelphia were there to be sequels. And it, of course, depends on how well this movie does. It hasn't done particularly well in the box office yet. I know it did pretty well here. When it, There are a number of people seeing it when I saw it at a session that wasn't particularly at a time when we normally get a lot of people. And that's kind of cool. And, of course, people want to see the third in a trilogy of any kind. You, you don't kind of drop out after the Empire Strikes Back. So the Overseer captures um, the Horde and it ends up in the same mental hospital where Elijah Price has been for the last 18 years or so since the events of Unbreakable. Elijah's in the hospital. He's heavily sedated because you don't want a super genius in a mental hospital planning and plotting things. Kevin Slash Horde has been controlled by a system where uh, bright strobe lights flash at him and that then leads to a different personality taking over. So if the if the beast manifests, they can flash the strobe lights at him and allow one of the different personalities of Kevin's, one of the other 23, to come to the fore. Now, the interesting thing, of course, about the Horde is that Kevin's body chemistry changes with each personality. So one of them is diabetic and needs insulin while that personality is at the fore. Then, of course, you've got the immense physical changes that occur when the beast comes up. So I kind of like the way that that's approached in the narrative. I mean, it's from Split, of course, because Split featured Kevin as a very central character in there. But bringing the three together kind of worked for me this time. And the secondary character is kind of interesting. Mrs. Price is interesting, Charlene Woodard's character, who has faith in her son and has that kind of unquestioning love of a mother for a child. Uh, Charlene Woodard puts that across really well in not too many scenes, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Spencer Treat Clark as Joseph, David's son, has kind of been involved in the overseer's work. He's the man in the chair. He's the guy who sits back at home on um, the radio doing the research and, and giving him the information he needs to do what he has to do. He's like Batman's Alfred or Ned, the sidekick to Tom Holland's Peter Parker in the Spider-Man movies. He's the guy who gives the information and... The fact that he's kind of evolved into that role since childhood is really interesting. And as an adult, he makes the decision to support his father's endeavours as the overseer uh, while they run a security company and a security shop. It's kind of cool how that character's evolved and how they could get the original actor back to do that. And they actually use a couple of um, unused scenes from Unbreakable to strengthen that bond between David and his son, Joseph. James McAvoy's a tour de force playing all of the different aspects of the personality. It, he gets to kind of play the showboating role and the role that draws attention to him as an actor a lot. But you can't really play somebody with 23 personalities and not be the featured juggler in the circus. And McAvoy does that really well. The accents are spot on. The physical acting is extraordinarily good. And... Yeah, he makes the character, you know, totally outrageous though it is, very, very believable. And it was also good to see Anya Taylor-Joy's character Casey come back because she was in a very bad situation for a teenager during the movie Split, but she's in a caring foster home and she's got her ducks lined up and is dealing with her issues. And it was kind of good to see that. And the fact that she comes back to try to help Kevin shows how far she's come as a person since Split. So good on Knife for giving her a go with that as well and to kind of show a strong but not showy female character. And I kind of like that. There are a couple of strong female characters in here, particularly um, Mrs. Price and Casey. They're the two showy 
well, non-showy, but strong female characters in there. Then we get Sarah Paulson's character, Dr. Staple. Now, I can't talk too much about her without giving away some stuff, but she's... Um, Sarah Paulson does a really great job of conveying the fake empathy of Dr. Staple. Let's just say that. And the kind of professionally precise care that she's supposed to be giving to these characters. And she's as real as a valentine from a pimp. But we know that right from the start. And Sarah Paulson plays it that way in a way that um, conveys that the powers that be may well know who she is and what her real agenda is. And they don't care because they're a part of it. Now, there's an aspect of this movie, and I'm going to kind of skirt to the edges of spoilers, but not too much, which addresses um, 1% issues as well in a totally new and totally surprising context. That um, revelation is came a yeah, blindside of me. I knew there was something going on, but there was no way from the way the narrative was given to us that we could predict what that is. And of course, M. Night Shyamalan is the master of the twist. And what he's done with this one is given us subtler twists and given us twists that are predictable. I mean, in the sixth sense, I guessed the twist fairly early on when I first saw it. And over the years since then, he's become much better at giving us interesting, if not mind-boggling, twists. I mean, the, the revelations in this movie are nowhere near as intense as they were in, say, The Sixth Sense. But they're apt. They're, they're in place. They're on point for the narrative and for the movie that we're actually seeing. People have talked about the underwhelming climax, but I don't think... It was a superhero climax that this movie required and that we got from this movie. It wasn't a superhero climax because, in a sense, this is almost a conspiracy movie in some ways. It's a movie that doesn't play to genre expectations. We know there are superhumans in this one, but the way it is done by the director-writer isn't a way that says, no, I'm not going to play in exactly the same way other people play it. I'm not going to have a big end boss battle and that everything turns out okay. I'm not going there. It's not what I want to do. It's not how I set up this particular narrative. And I like that. I like the fact that he's willing to risk unpopularity to tell the story that he wants to tell. There's also a bit of misdirection in there. There's the opening of a large office building in Philadelphia, and we get the idea that um, Elijah is planning something there. And he actually tells us what the plan is to blow up that building so that there's... It's threatened to blow up the building so that there's a big boss battle between the Beast and the Overseer so that the nature of superhumans becomes public knowledge. So it's done as a big display thing because Elijah's locked into the superhero narrative, whereas the actual story isn't about to a large extent, a superhero narrative. So Elijah tells us there's going to be a boss battle at the end of the movie, and because the movie doesn't deliver it that way, people get disappointed. The movie goes in a different direction. Now, I don't know to what extent that was manifested by budgetary limitations. We don't know the backstory on whether money fell through at the last minute or whether the fact that because Knight was financing most of this himself, he had to change the script at some stage. It's a little hard to tell at this time, though that story may well be revealed to us later on. There may well be future movies in this one because the total opening globally for the film, and I just kind of did a bit more research on it, 105 to 120 million, so five times the budget back, allowing for uh, PR and things like that, let's say 50 million clear profit on this movie. So that's probably going to mean that we're going to see more of it if he is so inclined to do that. Now, there are some um, character loose ends that are tied off in this movie, which means that, as I said, future movies are going to be very, very different from previous ones. But Knight isn't a person that does predictable things in his career. He really hasn't. I mean, yes, he's had a couple of failures and a couple of things where the, um, the twists telegraphed themselves quite nicely and people were expecting the twists and 
it didn't go well for him. But he, he's kind of, in a way, one of the great auteurs of the 21st century. He started out in 2000, uh, well, before that, in 1996 with The Sixth Sense. So he's been doing this for more than 20 years now. But he's kind of going his own way and not doing things just because the zeitgeist is, is doing, says do things a particular way. The zeitgeist is so locked into the DCEU and Marvel to have a superhero trilogy spaced out over 19 years and have it be very, very much a non-traditional superhero narrative is something that I think some audiences and critics just weren't up for. Now, the movie does have flaws in it from my point of view as well. I've always got a problem with David Dunn. I think that, yes, he is kind of withdrawn and taciturn and Bruce Willis conveys the character very well. He's acting in this one is some of his best acting in years. But I think having him such a withdrawn character, where it plays in knowingly against the superhero trope of superheroes being a little more extroverted, having an introverted and kind of introspective superhero might play well on a page, but I'm still not convinced how well it plays in a movie. I think giving David Dunn just a little more life, in a sense, and a little more vitality, given the nature of his superhuman abilities, then it may have become a very different movie. Um, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, is fantastic, playing Elijah Price. He can speechify as well as any actor now out there, and... um, He's an actor who seems to carry the weight of exposition in a lot of movies he's in. As Nick Fury, he gets us from A to B as far as the narratives are concerned in some of the Marvel movies. And as Elijah Price, he's the one who explains what he says is happening in the narrative. And he's the one who explains his past very, very well and the justification for his character's actions very, very well. But in this case, Elijah misses something that's the the interesting thing here he kind of knows what's going on and but unpredictable things happen to him during the course of the movie he's got a plan b there's always a plan b with a super genius and the plan b is the part that opens up the possibility for future movies in the east rail 177 series i've said before that superhero narratives are a bit like westerns. You can put a lot under the tent. I mean, a western can be Blazing Saddles. It can be a Shakespearean adaptation like Jubal, the 1950s movie with Ernest Borgnine. It could be a story of tragedy like Unforgiven. It can be a story that talks to contemporary problems and situations the way High Noon did, for instance. And I think superhero movies can be the same kind of thing. I think it's a very kind of broad genre that'll encompass a whole bunch of subgenres very comfortably. Now, the problem there is, is the audience going to come along for all of those? Probably not. Audiences can want and expect certain things out of a superhero movie. And when it doesn't deliver because it isn't that kind of superhero movie, then there's a possibility that they're going to be disappointed and they're going to criticise it. And the word of mouth for that particular film will suffer because of it. And I think that may well happen with Glass to a certain extent. Um, And that's a shame because I think that having different voices and having different ways of seeing the superhero narrative is cool. The more, the better. I mean, we can... There have already been Bollywood movies uh, with superhero narratives like Koi Gaia and the Krish series. There are Asian superhero movies, all kinds of things. There are And even within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there have been different types of superhero movies while remaining part of that meta-narrative. But this one I liked. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I think that it's a valid part of the genre and that um, the fact that it doesn't do things traditionally, that it doesn't have a traditional climax and that it was in some ways constrained probably by the limitations of the budget 
means that it still means that it shouldn't be dismissed and it shouldn't be criticised for that. Budgets are often beyond the controls of the creators. And maybe um, Knight wasn't able to cut a deal because he wanted to keep creative control over certain things. And that also happens too, where if you get the money you want and if you get a bigger budget, then you've got to give something away and that something is usually the ability to say no. And in this movie, I believe with the exception of the possibility that there might have been a different location and means to the end, I think that he stayed true to his own vision of it, nor strength to me for that. So that's about it for this time around. Um, see Glass, if you want to see Once Upon a Deadpool, see it, but you're not going to want to see it more than once. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can get to my YouTube channel too if you go to youtube.com slash letter slash Terry Frost. You'll find all the YouTube videos there. I'm slowly learning. I'm getting better. Um, but it's a it's a learning curve and it's a lot of work to do. There's a lot more work to do the YouTube videos than the podcast, but I'm learning more from doing that than I have from anything in a very long time. And also thank you to the Patreon supporters. Without them, I couldn't do the podcast or the YouTube channel. And they're all universally wonderful people. Patrons of the arts, they're the Lorenzo de' Medici's of the podcasting world. And as usual, the credits for the podcast will be in the style of movie credits to respect and honour the people who are willing to dig into their pockets for maybe as little as $1 US a month to support the podcast and to support the YouTube channel. I'm going to be back next week with a Paleo Cinema podcast. I'm pretty sure I know what I'm going to be doing in that. And in two weeks or so with another Martian Drive-In podcast. So take care of yourselves. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Keep watching the skies. And I may play a bit of music after the credits, just as a post-credits sequence to keep you through the credits. Take care of yourselves, and I'll be back soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Drive-In Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolour consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Thank you.